I, I am excited about this um, sermon series. Seven churches mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation were seven literal congregations, as we learned last week. There's good reason to believe that seven churches were chosen because seven is the number of completion in Scripture. The letters that address these seven churches were sent by Jesus Christ, interpreted by the Holy Spirit, and written down, dictated by John. These letters, although historical and certainly spiritual in significance, are also prophetic in nature. They indeed address literal congregations that were in existence during the first century, yet through the Word of God they continue to speak with relevance to congregations even to this day. And we need to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is our goal during this sermon series over the next several weeks, that God will speak to us in fresh ways, that our hearts will be moved and our spirit will be brought into God, into His presence, into His purpose. And may our lives be changed. That is my prayer. The first letter is to the church at Ephesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at today, the first seven verses of Revelation chapter 2. Although Pergamum was the official capital of the province of Asia, Ephesus was by far uh, the greatest city. Uh, there was none that compared to Ephesus in all of Asia Minor. A Roman writer once called it Luminase, or the light of Asia. Ephesus was located near the mouth of the Caister River, only about three miles or so from the coast. It was the commercial and religious hub of all of Asia Minor. It was given the title Supreme Metropolis of Asia. It was a beautiful place. Indeed, it also contained one of the seven wonders of the world, the temple of Artemis, or Diana, as it's called from time to time. It was the center of mystical cult worship. Uh, the temple was massive. It was 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, 60 feet tall, surrounded by 127 marble pillars, many of those covered in solid gold. The worship of Diana was religious immorality at its worst. And it's against this backdrop that this great church was birthed and came to be. I want you to read with me. Now I have a great task ahead of me today, so before we read, we're going to pray once more, and I'm going to give you an opportunity to pray that somehow or another I preach this quickly. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much, the Bible says, and you would probably do well to pray that God will help me get through this because this is a monumental undertaking to get through one of these churches a week because I could literally spend seven weeks easy in this one church. So you pray with me, please. Father, thank you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your word. 
And as I stand here, God, I do so in the weight of responsibility that I need to be listening to you. And I need to be led by you. And I pray, God, that you would give me your words and help me. Lord, I realize how underqualified I am for this and how insignificant I am. But Lord, this is where you've called me today. So I pray for your help and your touch and I pray that our hearts would be blown away by what you have to say this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's read Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden candlesticks or lampstands. I know your deeds, your labor, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate those who are evil and you have tested and exposed as liars those who falsely claim to be apostles. Without growing weary, you have persevered and endured many things for the sake of my name. But I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. Therefore keep in mind how far you have fallen. Repent and perform the deeds you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. What a beautiful passage of scripture. I hope you have a pen or pencil today and some paper, and I I hope that you will take notes if you do. And and in the weeks to come, make sure you're prepared for that and and bring with you something to write with and something to write on. Uh, You have some space on the back of the bulletin that you can use, and I hope that you will. Notice, first of all, with me the introduction to the letter comprises verse 1 and it says to the angel of the church at Ephesus in Ephesus write these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands in this verse of scripture we're introduced to both the audience and the author of this letter it starts by addressing the angel of the church as Steve mentioned last Sunday there are some differing opinions even among conservative evangelicals, as to who the angel is in these churches. Uh, What we do know is that the word translated angel, here's the Greek word angelos, it means messenger, or more specifically messenger of God, or angel. Uh, It's used 180 times in scripture, it's always used in the masculine. It's used of both angelic heavenly beings and human messengers such as John the Baptist. He's once called an angel in scripture. If you do a proper exegesis of these letters, you you quickly come to realize that this could not be an, an angelic being that God is referring to here. Although some say that they believe it is, but certainly it can't. God is speaking to someone here who is prone to sin and fallible. And we know that that's not case with the angelic beings that God would use. So we're talking about a human. And since pastors are messengers, 
that is messengers of the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we've been given the task of delivering God's word to his people, we are messengers, then it uh, seems the best explanation that who he's referring to here is a pastor or maybe an overseer of the church. We could call him, of course, a bishop or elder. Those titles are synonymous one with the other. It is my interpretation that God is addressing these letters to the pastors of these individual churches who would then turn around and share the message with their congregations. And it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, uh, here the glorified Christ gives John this command to, to write. And this command is in the aorist imperative tense, meaning that he needs to do it now. Uh, it was immediate. You, you, you don't have time to wait. I need you to write this down. Don't delay. This is important. You need to write down these words. According to chapter 1, verse 11, uh, it was the entire scroll from Revelation 1, 1 to Revelation 22, 21 that would be circulated among these seven churches. Now, there are letters, these seven letters that are written specifically to seven different churches, but all of the churches would have received all of the letters. Uh, so just like you and I today, all the churches mentioned in these two chapters would have been privy to the whole content of the book and would have had the opportunity to learn from it. Uh, so they were reading each other's mail, so to speak, and we're doing the same thing today for the purpose of learning what God desires and wants and commands and demands of His church and His people. So to the church at Ephesus, write, these are the words. A really good interpretation of that or translation of that is, this is the solemn pronouncement. Uh, these are the sayings you'll read in many translations. These are the words or this is the solemn pronouncement as it's translated in the New English translation of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here we have the first snapshot of seven very specific pictures of the risen glorified Savior as he will reveal himself in each of these seven letters. Here Jesus, we see him holding the stars or the angels in his right hand or the pastors. Now some of you don't think of me as an angel. I've always wanted to be a star. I've never pulled that off. But God calls me an angel or a star. Kind of makes me feel good about myself. But, but just about the time I start thinking good about myself, I realize that I'm in His right hand. And that tells me a couple of different things. First of all, that I am cared for and supported by God. But it also tells me that at any time, if I misbehave, He could close His hand on me. So that is a very uh, great responsibility to that, that I take to heart. So here we see this picture of Jesus. He holds the pastors. He holds the angels in His right hand. And He's walking among the seven golden lampstands. Because of the introduction last week in chapter 1, we, we know that the lampstands are the churches. You, you need to be aware that God is walking among us. He's not just off in the heavenlies somewhere looking down upon us. Some people have that picture of God. That he's, that he's sitting in heaven somewhere. We don't know exactly where. He's sitting on a throne. He has a great staff in his hand and has long gray hair and a long gray beard and it's just kind of blowing in the breeze and, and he's watching us. That's the picture that they have of God, but that's not the picture that we see of God at all in Scripture. God is walking among us. He is walking with us and he is within us. 
And he's here for a purpose. He loves us and he cares about us and he's watching over us. He holds the seven stars in his right hand. I love that picture. Isaiah 48, 13 says, My hand laid, this is God speaking, My hand laid the foundation of the earth. He said, just, just let that sink in for a moment. My hand laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. When God calls the heavens, they stand in attention. Exodus 15, 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, is glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Psalm 18.35 says, You have given me the shield of your salvation, and your right hand supported me, and your gentleness made me great. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. There's something special about the right hand of God. And He's holding His messengers in his right hand and he's walking among the lampstands. God is with us. Isaiah 57, 17 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and with the oppressed and humble in spirit, to restore the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. Yeah, yeah, it's true that God is in eternity. He is in the heavenlies, but it's just as equally true that He is with us today in this place. What an introduction to a letter. God is with us. As Jesus writes to this great church. Notice number two in the body of the letter we read, we see the praise of his congregation. The praise of his, or this congregation. Verse two and three again. I know your deeds, your labor, your perseverance. I, I know that you cannot tolerate those who are evil. and You have tested and exposed as liars those who falsely claim to be apostles. Without growing weary, you have persevered and endured many things for the sake of my name. But and then in verse 6, he says, And you have this to your credit also. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Here we have eight or ten things, according to whether or not you combine some as some do, that God commends this church for. And he starts his commendations, commendations by stating, I know, I know. He says it repeatedly, I know, I know. God knows. God knows everything about me. God knows everything about you. He knows everything about this church and every church. God knows. He knows. He knows all things. He knows the good, the bad, and the ugly. The Greek word translated know is the word edu. And it means to perceive with the eyes and the whole of senses. It means to pay special attention to, to, to turn an eye toward and mind and attention toward a thing. God knows everything about us because He's watching over us at all times. He sees everything that we do. God knows everything. Does, does that comfort you? 
Uh, does it scare you? It should, both. God knows everything about us, and, he, and He's watching us. Now, I want to look at these commendations, and I have, there's no chance of me getting through all of these. No way. Now, Rita Yother is here this morning, and, and she thinks I can talk the bark off a tree, but there's still no way that I can get through all these things. I want to look at a few, and then we'll move on. I know your deeds. Look, look at these first few. I know your deeds, your, your labor, and your perseverance. Uh, when he says deeds, he could be referring to a specific deed or some specific deeds that, that they have done, or it could encompass all of the deeds that follow in Jesus' commendation. We don't know for sure. We don't know exactly. Most versions say your works. I know your works. So it's important that I stop here for a moment and, and tell you, I need you to know that uh, no amount of good works will save you. Uh, we, we're not saved by our works. There's, this is a really sad misconception within a lot of churches that if we do good enough, if we work good enough, if we work enough, if we do enough good deeds, good things, that when Jesus comes back for his church, it's just going to all work out okay. He will invite us in because we had been an integral part of his mission, cause, and purpose in the world, and he'll just say, okay, because of what you've done, enter in into the joy of the Lord. But that is not the case. You can work your fingers to a bone. You can work around the church until your yard at home is over your belt high and, and, and still never get into heaven. You, you, that's not what it takes. And, and the Word of God is plain about that. It's clear. It's not just me speaking, but Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. We're not saved by our works or our deeds. And there's a lot of denominations, there's a lot of different religions that get this wrong. And the Word of God's very clear. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. But it is a gift of God. Now, we're not saved by our works, but we are saved for good works. If you're a born-again believer, if you're a child of God, if you're saved going to heaven when you die... You are meant to work for the purpose of the kingdom. We know that because verse 10 of that same chapter says this, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So the question today is, are you a worker for the kingdom or, or just a spectator? We have a lot of people in the church that are spectators and God has called us to be workers but it's not our works that gets us into heaven it's our belief and our faith in Jesus Christ I know your labor Jesus goes on to say I know your labor and your perseverance the church at Ephesus was not a lazy church as a matter of fact they were willing to work up a little holy sweat for the kingdom because the Greek word for labor here refers to an exhausting physical or mental labor and in some contexts describes work that is fraught with difficulties, hardships, and burdens. John MacArthur said about this church, the Ephesians were diligent workers for the cause of Christ. Theirs were, was no spectator mentality. They did not want merely to be entertained, nor were they content to eat the fruit of other people's labor but were willing to plow, plant, and harvest their own crop. 
What a great word for this church, church in Ephesus. They were a working church. They persevered, persevered. The Greek word for persevere is hupponome, a word which speaks of steadfastness. We were talking about this in men's prayer breakfast yesterday morning. We need men in the church that are steadfast and constant. Men that are committed to the cause of Jesus Christ. And, and Jesus said about this church that, that they were persevering, they were committed, they were steadfast. And he commended them for that. Oh, that we might have people in the churches that are steadfast today. Chuck Swindoll said of perseverance, this, this Greek term implies endurance under extreme hardship in the face of life-threatening challenges or against seemingly impossible odds. The Ephesian Christians face special challenges because they refused to bow the knee to the goddess Diana or the images of the emperor. They found themselves maligned, slandered, boycotted, and abused, not unlike Jewish merchants in Berlin in the 1930s. Christians in Ephesus would have been the objects of physical violence, social ostracism, and economic repression, yet they endured, and they were recognized for their perseverance by God. I know your labor. I know your perseverance. Steadfastness. Let's read. I've got to hurry. It goes on to say, I, I know that you can't tolerate those who are evil. A, a, a sad misnomer about the church in America today is that we, we should tolerate everything that it's unkind and it's judgmental if we don't tolerate every sin. And, and that's not the truth. We're not, supposed, we're not supposed to tolerate sin. When we, when we see sin blatantly being displayed in our world, the church has not only the authority but the responsibility to stand up and say, hey, God has a better plan for your life than that. God has something He wants to do in you and through you, and God has a better way to live your life than what you're living. We, we shouldn't just tolerate anything that comes down the pike. We, we should stand on the principles and on the precepts of Scripture and, and make the Word of God known. I know that you can't tolerate those who are evil. That's a commendation. And that you've tested and exposed as liars those who falsely claim to be apostles. They were being Bereans here in Ephesus. There were a lot of false apostles, false teachers at this particular time in history. They were coming, many of them were adding to the grace of God works and different things, and, and the worship of Balaam and others, as we will read in a moment. And, and this church tested everything that came in, and 
And they proved many of them to be liars. And they were able. They were able to take a stand for God and keep their friends and families from being led astray. God help churches today to stand for the truth of God's word and, and speak out against error. Verse 3, without growing weary, you have persevered and endured many things for the sake of my name. They had stood true even in very difficult times. We, one of the things that we talked about yesterday in men's prayer was that the church in America has had it so easy. For all these many years, we've, we've lived in the blessings and under the blessings of God. And we've had it so easy that that true persecution we've never really known before. And, and because of that, we have a generation of soft, very soft Christians that if any little thing comes up, then all of a sudden they're just abandoning the whole truth of God in the church. But here was a church that had gone through great persecution. They had known the persecution that comes from being associated with Jesus Christ in their day. Many of them had been put to death, their family members and, and friends. And as we read a moment ago from Chuck Swindoll, they had been ostracized and, and pushed out of society. They had known the persecutions of God, but they had remained steadfast. They had persevered. And, and, and here again, Jesus is remarking about this and commending them without growing weary. Over and over again, you've been persecuted, but you have not grown weary. You have stayed true and endured many things for the sake of my name. Then we skip down to verse 6, and he says, You also have this to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. No one knows for sure. We, we, we believe that probably these were leaders who desired to control the laity, who, can, who wanted to control the church and the people, and who also led them astray in the worship of Balaam, worship of Baal. And, and so we, 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 we believe that that's what it was. And, 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 and here Jesus says, you have this to your credit that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Now, keep in mind that he says you hate the works, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans themselves. This is a, this is a problem area in the church. Some, some churches believe, some churches teach, some preachers teach that we, that we hate certain people who do certain sin. And it's not ever to be the case. We love the sinner. We hate the sin. We love the sinner. And this is a perfect picture of that. You hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Jesus says, I also hate that myself, but not the Nicolaitans themselves. When he was on the cross, they were on his mind. So ten things here God commends about this church, and it's quite a list. But God, being holy and just, can't stop there as if nothing else matters. So we see, secondly or thirdly, the problem with this congregation. In the body of the letter, we have the praise of this congregation. Now, now the problem with this congregation. Verse 4 uh, says, but I have this against you. <laughs> you have abandoned your first love. I don't know what it would have been like there present at the church of Ephesus that, that morning when this letter was being read. But I can, I can imagine knowing what I'm like and, and knowing what we're like. As, as he's reading out these accolades and these commendations, uh, people would have been getting out on the edge of their seat a little bit and maybe throwing back their chest. Oh, man, this is what Jesus thinks of us. And then all of a sudden, as if the whole world comes to a screeching halt, 
Jesus says, but I have something against you. Wow. But that, that, that conjunction, that, that contrast, and there's not a more dramatic terms of contrast in the Bible than this. But I have something against you because you have abandoned your first love. Listen, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, this same church that we're reading about, and he says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This was written around the year 62, 63 A.D., Paul would go on to make another 20 or so mentions of their love for one another and for God. And then just some 30 years later, this, this letter that we're reading from today was written probably around 96 A.D., so 32, 33, 34 years later. Just, just 34 years later, Jesus says of this same church that Paul was praising as being renowned for their love for one another. Jesus says of them, you have abandoned your first love. Wow. How, how does that happen? How can we be head over heels in love with Jesus one day and then the next day or the next month or the next year or even a few years later find ourselves lacking and find ourselves missing that first love that was so strong in us that we would share the gospel, we would share what Jesus did with us to anyone we met. And most all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, have gone through something similar like that in our lives. Man, when I first got saved, I told everybody I met. People that I knew, people that I didn't know, it didn't matter to me. I was just telling people that I'm a Christian. God saved me. Jesus saved me. When I was called into ministry and I started preaching the gospel, I was renewed in my excitement to tell people about Jesus Christ. But over the years, 37 years now I've been in ministry, over the years we tend to get tired and, and, and we, we tend to fatigue in the work and we, 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 go rear, rear, we go, grow weary in the work. And, and, and we find that our love for God isn't what it used to be. And even our love for one another isn't what it used to be. And why was this such a grievous thing considering, considering everything else that they were doing well? I mean, God lists off, Jesus lists off about ten things here that they're doing well, and then he just puts the brakes on it all, and he says, hey, but I've got something against you. And he not only says, I've got something against you, he, he, he puts in some very dire consequences. You've got to get this right or I'll, I'll do away with you. What? Why, why is this such a bad thing? Well, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us, this is again Paul writing, but this time to the church at Corinth. He says, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. He would go on to say in verse 13, but now abide faith, hope, and love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. 
Well, when you read here in Revelation 2, in light of these verses in 1 Corinthians, you realize why it's so grievous. I don't know about you, but I know people. I've known, I've known people, I've known churches that stood in the pulpit and they proclaimed the love of Jesus Christ. But once they left the pulpit, there was no love of Christ to be found. And it's heartbreaking, it's heart-wrenching, it's heart-wrenching to God. And God says this to every church, get this right. Love people. Now listen, we need to be doctrinally sound, we need to be theologically correct. All of those things need to line up and that's the goal of every Christian or it should be. And it's certainly, and it's certainly the goal of the leadership of this church to make sure that we are doctrinally sound and correct in what we teach and do. But we can be perfect doctrinally and still be off base if we're not loving people. The Bible says we love above all things. The problem with this congregation was that they had abandoned their first love. And I've got to hurry. The praise of this congregation, the problem with this congregation. And then notice, uh, fourthly, the position this congregation was in. Verse 5 says, therefore, keep in mind or remember, remember how far you have fallen. Repent and perform the deeds you did at first. But if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I love it when Jesus alliterates. And here he gives them three R's. Re remember Repent, or I will remove. Those are strong words. If you're a Bible student and you come across that and you, and you read, remember how far you have fallen, you, you have to ask yourself the question, remember what? What exactly is he talking about? Well, it's easy to surmise he's, he's talking about love. But, but where, where were they? in God's mind when he says go back to that place. Well, we have that reference in Ephesians chapter 5. Paul, again, writing to the same church that we're reading about here in Revelation chapter 2, he says in Ephesians 5, verse 1 and 2, be imitators of God. Therefore, as beloved children, notice verse 2, and walk in love just as Christ loved us. And gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrificial offering of God. And walk in love just as Christ loved us. And it's with that that Jesus says, remember how far you have fallen. Listen, that's the cure-all of life right there. That verse right there. Do, do, you, do you have something against someone? Hey, let me read you something. Walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave himself for you. When you start thinking in those terms, you can't find anyone you don't love. <laughs> When you start thinking about the fact that God loved you, that Christ loved you when you were unlovable, He gave you something you did not deserve. He loved you so much, He gave His life for you as a fragrant sacrifice to God. He loved you that much. Now, how do you love? How do you love? When I think about what God did for me, when I think about how much Christ loves 
me, poor old pitiful, pathetic me. When I think about Christ loving me, crazy me, ridiculous me, egotistical me, when I, when I think about Christ loving me, I can't help but love everyone else. So if I should ever get curt with you, I don't suspect it will ever happen. But if I should, just say, remember, preacher, Jesus died for you. I will quickly correct my attitude. Wow. Remember, repent, or I will remove. Just in case, just in case you think of God as a cosmic grandfather who only desires to play with us and give us good gifts. Let me share something with you. You write this down. God has no grandchildren. You will never see that in Scripture. God only has children. He only has children. And as a father, there's times that he has to correct us. He has to discipline us. And when God disciplines, he's not playing. Remember, repent, or I will remove. The praise of this congregation, the problem with this congregation, the position this congregation was in. Now notice the conclusion, and I'll close, Mary, if you want to come. Verse 7, he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. You remember the tree of life, right? First mentioned in Genesis 2, verse 9, I believe. In paradise lost, it was there that the tree of life was removed. Taken out, but Jesus offers as a gift to all believers this, this, this right to eat from the tree of life. To those who overcome, to those who overcome, I will grant the right to eat from the tree of life. So when you read that, your first thought should be, well, how do I overcome? How do I overcome? Because, because there's a great promise offered to those who overcome. So how do I overcome? Let me share that with you. John is the one that tells us in 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. He writes under the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God, Everyone born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who then overcomes the world, he asked? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And for those of us who have believed on Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we have been given the right to eat of the tree of life. Mm. Now the tree of life we know was a real tree in the Garden of Eden. Today it is a symbol of life, but it's more than just a symbol of life. It's actually still a real tree 
and it will be in paradise. Paradise found. Just as it was in paradise lost. It will be there when we get there. And Jesus has promised that we will eat from that tree. What a beautiful thought. To those who overcome, to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, to those who have placed their faith in Christ, to those that overcome, it is granted that you will eat of the tree of life. My question to you today is this. Are you an overcomer?